everyone, and welcome to another episode of God's Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, it's going to be Ken and I talking about uh, uh, an issue, something that's going around, um, different theological uh, positions are being, uh, are being expounded upon within the church, and so we're going to unpack some of that uh, for you today and, and uh, give you some, some more tools in your tool belt as you're navigating this, uh, this climate that we find ourselves in. So Ken, I know that you're uh, overcoming some jet lag from, from your Germany uh, trip that went well, and uh, thanks so much for joining us. You're back home for, I think, just a few hours. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I flew in on Monday evening. I am home, well, I was home yesterday and I'm home today, Wednesday. Tomorrow I'm going to Idaho. <clears throat> Idaho. I thought I was coming back to Los Angeles um, early next week, but something has come up. And so now I think I'm actually going to be gone another week. And, you know, it, it does, it does weigh on me after a while <laughs> absolutely absolutely well uh i know that this is uh this is important to you and so we're we're trying to give fresh content out uh each week for everyone and so i just appreciate that i know that everyone listening uh appreciates it so thanks for taking time and and joining us uh let's uh set the stage ken i mean do you want to start unpacking this a bit of what we're talking about i think i think we should we should title this episode you might you might want to speak into it but i'm thinking you know the difference between the person of jesus and the title of christ yep i think that's a i think that's a fair and accurate title for what we're going to discuss awesome well i'm i'm excited i'm excited to get to it and i know you're you're pulling up some some articles and all of that and just to give some background there's there's a lot of thoughts uh going on there's a lot of people uh, that are working to uh, even unknowingly bifurcate uh, the person of Jesus, the physical, uh, you know, man Jesus, uh, from the title uh, of Christ, and and it's it's a pretty unique uh, viewpoint that is really trying to separate those two, and then um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, apply the title of Christ, which we know is the uh, the Gentile uh, Greek uh, translation of Messiah uh, to um, other things, and we've we've talked about this before with some of the things that uh, that Rick Rohr has wrote on. Um, you know, Christ is in the tree; it's in the dog; it's it's everywhere, and um, and it's just sort of filtered into everything, and it really has some dramatic theological um, impact and. Exactly. Uh, what it actually, if you if you go down that route, what it really teases out. So I'm looking forward to this uh, this discussion, Ken. I think it's much needed uh, pastorally. So um, yeah, tell us what your what your thoughts are. Well, without further ado, right? <laughs> so I want to start by reading a quotation from one of the uh, most popular uh, thinkers out there right now. I won't name the person, but uh, one of the most popular thinkers out there right now. And uh, I, I wrote this as part of um, a set of notes for a talk that I gave. I, I think actually at your church, uh, just, just 
maybe ahead of COVID. I, I think it might have been in February of 2019. But anyway, here's here's how, what I wrote. And then I'm going to read another quotation from someone else, and then we'll kind of launch into our discussion. So this is this is me. In our time, there has been a movement that seeks to separate Jesus from Christ. It began in the mid-20th century in the halls of academia. For a long time, the church at large was unaware of this teaching and remained essentially, and it remained essentially off the radar and unchallenged. However, one of the prominent false prophets, who is widely viewed as a mystic, has written, quote, the spirit of Christ is not the same as the person of Jesus. Christ, essentially God's love for the world, has existed since the beginning of time, suffuses everything in creation, and has been present in all cultures and civilizations. Jesus is an incarnation of that spirit, and following him is our, uh, now small quotes, best shortcut, close small quotes, for accessing it. But this spirit can be found through the practices of other religions like Buddhist meditation or through communing with nature. This is the capital C cosmic, capital C Christ, cosmic Christ, who always was, who became incarnate in time, and who is still being revealed. Close quotations. So, so I, I deliberately quoted N. Block from this uh, her heretical teacher, because, you know, one of the things that you do when you're, well, whether in a court of law or in academic circles, you allow people to speak for themselves and then you comment on what they have said. And so um, I just want to say that this is really nothing more than panentheism, which is the belief or doctrine that while God is greater than the universe, he nevertheless includes and interpenetrates it. Uh, panentheism is different from pantheism uh, because pantheism holds that the divine and the universe are identical. Panentheism is a core belief, uh, excuse me, pantheism, got to keep these terms straight, my mistake. Pantheism is a core belief of Hinduism and all Eastern philosophy, namely that all of reality is God, an expression of the Atman or the soul of the universe. And you, you heard that language in the quotation that I read. Um, it maintains an ontological distinction between the divine and the non-divine. Sorry, I jumped ahead in my reading. Scratch that. Let me go back. In contrast to this, there we go. Panentheism claims that God is greater than the universe. It maintains an ontological distinction between the divine and the non-divine, and it affirms the significance of both. Now, for those who don't know the word, unless you're tripped up on it, the word ontological, uh, the word ontology comes from the Greek word on, which means the ground of being. So we're talking about what truly is the nature of something. Is it divine and uncreated, or is it created and therefore not divine? So panentheism, in contrast to pantheism, uh, sees that there is a created order and there is the divine, whereas pantheism believes everything is divine. So there's your distinction between the two. Uh, yet panentheism is at the root of what is called in seminaries process theology, the belief that God is still revealing himself and discovering himself through creation. It lies diametrically opposed to what we read in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, 
long ago in many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world jesus is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, there are some nuances in everything I've said, uh, to be sure, but God, uh, because God still can reveal himself through creation. He can speak to us through visions. He can have things that he calls out as he did with Amos or with Jeremiah. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree. What do you see, Amos? I see a basket of summer fruit all of that you know god spoke through something that was the created order and so in the charismatic world we do believe that that sort of thing can still go on but uh and so i should add to that this understanding that god can speak to us through creation is really at the heart of what i call the prophetic consciousness that is to say what is it that makes a prophet a prophet what makes them able to hear from god and receive whatever the words are that they bring, whether they're words to a community of faith, whether they're words to a leader of a nation, whether they are personal prophetic words that, and I'm assuming here that all of these are right and proper words. So this is at the heart of the prophetic consciousness. And if you don't like that language, just throw it out. I'm not trying to lean into anything new age here. In fact, I'm speaking against something that's very new age, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to help people kind of understand the terms and the categories here. Um, however, this pantheistic, uh, panentheistic understanding undercuts the finality of Jesus. It opens the way to both universalism, which is the belief that everybody, everybody will be saved, even if they don't believe in Jesus. In fact, um, one of the German theologians in the mid-20th century said that there are many people who are Christians in disguise, and they don't even know that they're Christians yet, but they will find out on Judgment Day that they were Christians all along. Um, so that's, that's one side is this idea of universalism. And the other side of it is annihilationism, namely that the worst that can happen to someone is like the flame on a candle. When you wet your fingers and snuff it out, uh, you know, you, you end the life of that person or that being. And then <clears throat> after their death, if they're not really believers, well, the, the worst that can happen is they simply lie in the dust of the earth and decompose. And when the heavens and earth are burned up uh, and a new heaven and earth are created, I mean, there's just nothing left of them. And so in a way, this denies the immortality of the soul. And it also certainly denies the finality of judgment. And oftentimes this sort of thinking is rooted in the belief uh, that, you know, God can't be punitive or God cannot judge. So pantheism is the belief that everything is god and panentheism believes that god is discovering himself through the evolutionary process of the universe and by that i don't necessarily mean biological evolution um we could talk about you know the emergence of quasars and the you know explosion of galaxies and all of that kind of thing but no matter what it is the process of change and development around us, whether at the micro scale of our own lives or a, on a more cosmic scale, God is still discovering himself. So that's the difference between pantheism and panentheism. Um, and that leads us to either universalism, the belief that everybody will be saved, or 
or uh, annihilationism, the belief that those who are not among the saved will simply be snuffed out, but there's really no hellfire waiting for them. And so uh, these twin beliefs are running rampant through revivalist circles with an estimated 80% of prominent teachers and prophets holding the one or the other of these views because of the fundamental belief that God, now I'm here I'm being a little bit facetious, cannot be mean. And so, you know, these are, these are significant problems that are going on in renewal stream Christianity right now in our time as you and I speak. And this has kind of gone further. Um, so now I'm going to read from somebody else who posted a meme on uh, Instagram. Maybe it was uh, kind of mid-February, I think. I think. Um, so in this meme, this person says, what would make Jesus divine or even special if he had... <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is closing down. <clears throat> if he had an earthly father and natural conception. Well, this goes against the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ, which is clearly articulated uh, in Matthew and Luke. And this person goes on and says, I have a highlight on Jesus and atonement. And also in my Q&A, I answer some of this too. Obviously, this person is not a particularly good writer, but I'm just quoting directly. Right. And then this person goes on and says, I don't think Jesus was God. I also don't think Jesus thought he was God. Perens, a good book on this is How Jesus Became God by Bart Ehrman, close perens, period. Now, before I finish reading this, I want to just articulate what this is about. So Bart Ehrman is uh, the chair of something known as the Jesus Seminar. And the Jesus Seminar is something that was convened by a bunch of scholars, you know, seminary level scholars. And they sat, they took it upon themselves to sit down and parse through the whole of the four gospels to determine what was really the words of Jesus and what was not the words of Jesus based on, I guess, their infinite collective wisdom. And of course you hear the sarcasm in my voice as I say that. So this is literally the deconstruction of the scriptures, tearing them apart. And yet the, the word of God itself says that all scripture is breathed out by God. The, the Greek word is theopanoustos. And it is useful for teaching and correction and training in righteousness. But what this group seeks to do, this Jesus seminar, is they seek to say, well, not everything that you see in the Gospels is actually inspired. And the words that you know purport to be those of Jesus, presumably the red letters in a red letter version of the Bible, um, not all of these are from Jesus. And we the cognoscenti, we will enlighten you as to what is in and what is out so that you know what you should believe and should not believe. And based on the findings of the Jesus seminar, uh, which, which is something that convened, I want to say it was about 20 or 25 years ago. I don't remember actually when they finished their work and published their findings, but you wouldn't have to look very far online, whether on Amazon or on Google to, you know, get more on the Jesus seminar. Uh, anyway, they published their findings and they, you know, concluded that Jesus is not, in fact, God. He didn't believe he was God. And this was all something that was ginned up by the church as they were doctoring the scriptures together. 
and so it really became part of the formation of dogma. Um, dogma being you know, accepted church doctrine that doesn't change. All right. So that's my excursus on Bart Ehrman in the Jesus Seminar. Um, if you can't tell, just to be clear, I don't agree with any of that. Um, so then this person in this meme that was put up on Instagram, having given you the excursus, says, I don't follow the historical Jesus. I follow the Christ. Jesus was the Christ, but the Christ isn't limited to Jesus. I believe that divinity is within us all. And as we live into that divinity, we too are the Christ. To answer your question, I don't think Jesus was any more special than you and me. Again, this person doesn't write very well. He was a man tapped into his divinity like many before and after him. The narratives about him have made him into a deity in the last 2,000 years, but the Messiah wasn't supposed to be God. Well, that's the end of the meme. So the issue between the two quotations I've read is Jesus and Christ, which, of course, is how you introduce this broadcast. And the claim that all of these people are trying to make, both of these people, but there's a whole gathering of them that are going in this direction. The claim is that Jesus was a man and he had, in many cases, they call it the Christ consciousness, which came down upon him, rested upon him. It gave him enlightenment. But this idea of the Christ, the, the first writer said it was, you know, this idea of love, universal love uh, for all of creation. And then um, this writer says uh, that this person says, I don't follow the Christ. I simply believe that Jesus was more tapped into his divinity. Well, as you can see, endemic to this belief is the idea that we are divine. And yet biblical anthropology and biblical revelation has been very clear from time immemorial that human beings are not God, cannot become God, and never will be God. We are created beings, created by God himself, and it even says that on the sixth day, God created uh, man in the image of God. Did he create them male and female? He created them. So both men and women carry the image of God. We might say a reflection of God, but we are manifestly not God because we are created. And so, you know, when we, when we hear this thing that people are trying to do, they're trying to separate Jesus from Christ. Well, can you do that? That's, a, that's an important question. And the short answer is no, you cannot do that. Jesus is the name of a Jewish man, or he was born as a baby and grew up to be a Jewish man who lived in the first century. Um, but he happened also to be the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. It comes from the Hebrew root word mashah, which means to smear with the anointing oil. When we talk about the Christ, that's the Greek transliteration and translation. It's not merely a transliteration. Out of the word, the Hebrew word, Mashah, Messiah, the, the, the Mashad one, Mashiach is how we say it properly in Hebrew. We move that out of Hebrew culture into Gentile culture as the church is spreading beyond the borders of Israel. And with it, they change the word from Mashiach, meaning the one who has been Mashad. And again, we just kind of anglicize it to say Messiah. And they now say, as they are preaching about him in Greek culture, 
they now call him the Christos or the Christos. And this means that he is the one who is the anointed one. Well, isn't that interesting? So Mashiach and Christos, even though they're two different languages and don't sound the same, they have the same underlying meaning that the person who is this is the uniquely anointed one with a specific mission given to him by God the Father. It's a redemptive mission, and there is no one else who can be named Mashiach or Christos, whether in heaven or on earth, whether now or in the age to come. And so all of this that is being propounded is straight heresy, and it would have been condemned right up through the end of the 20th century, I think, in most of the church, as worthy of excommunication. And yet we have people who are in renewal stream circles who are teaching this and variants of it with second and third order effects, like what we called annihilationism or uni excuse me, universalism. And this has gone far and wide in renewal stream circles. So that in the last, you know, whatever, I, you know, I drew a line in the sand at the, at the beginning of the 21st century. In the last 22 years of the 21st century, this stuff has been spreading like kudzu and it needs to be stamped out. Now, some people are going to say, really, Ken, that's really hard line language. Uh, do, you, do you really think that, that it needs to be stamped out? Well, in the book of Jude, Jude says certain people have crept in unawares and they deny the sovereign Lord who brought them. And Jude says, I felt an urgency as I was going to write to you, my brothers and sisters, that you would contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This issue was a settled issue as early as when the book of Jude was being written. And yet people were, you know, already trying to deny Jesus, make themselves equal to Jesus, call themselves God. And this idea of calling yourself God is a core belief of Gnosticism, because generally what Gnostics want to do is they either want to say, well, with the pantheists, that we are, we are all God, because God's, the whole universe is God, or they become panentheists, and they want to say, you know, in the emanations that come from the Godhead, we rise through the emanations and we latch onto the Greek word for the Atman, that's a Hindu term, is the Aeon. But note that they both, they sound somewhat similar. So the Aeon is really the, the, the fundamental Godhead being. And as we rise through the emanations of the Aeon, those emanations are there because of the panentheistic belief as we rise to that, we merge into the universal consciousness of the aeon. So at, at that point, you know, there's, there's not much distinction left between Hinduism and panentheism. And it's interesting that, uh, that when we look at this, most of the Gnostic teaching arose in um, what today we call Turkey, Asia Minor, there was a major Roman road that ran through Turkey and went all the way to India. It was one of the trade routes. And during the Persian Empire, which you know precedes the Roman Empire by approximately uh, 500 years, maybe 400. But anyway, during that period of, of the, the, the ending of that uh, pre-Christ time period, during all of that, the Persians had a major road, which ran from... Ephesus right through Colossae and all the way to the, the Indus River. And when with that, 
today we call it the Ganges, but back then they called it the Indus River. And by the way, when you crossed the Indus, you went into the realm of the Hindus. So now we understand where the word Hindu comes from. So with all of that, those beliefs were traveling down those major trade routes, just as Christianity moved out from Ephesus, Colossae, uh, Galatia, down the trade routes that ran through Turkey, modern Turkey. Uh, this is how the gospel was disseminated by the believers as they went about their everyday life. Well, there's a reverse process to it, too. It's the importation of all of this thinking of the East. And so this is exactly why Gnosticism originally arose in cities like Colossae. It began to um, in, infect Ephesus and several of the other major cities you know, in that part of the world. And it was a major battle within the early church. It literally went on for centuries uh, well into the 400s AD and beyond in some cases for the church to fight, to battle, and to come against all of this Gnostic belief, all of this Gnostic teaching. Now, one of the results of it was the understanding that Jesus was a created being, which is what you heard in this second meme that I read. And, and with that, in 325 AD, there was a major council held in the city of Nicaea, which is on the uh, Turkish coast. And in Nicaea, they held the first major ecumenical council of the church, known as the Nicene Council, because it was held in Nicaea. And there they adopted what we call the Nicene Creed. And because of that Nicene Creed, this really codified what the church had been thinking for about 295 years since the crucifixion of Jesus. And with it, they, they put this into a creed. There was an earlier version of it, which they, uh, I would say, expanded upon and upgraded. That earlier version was known as the Apostles' Creed. It comes from the early 2nd century, so the 100s, low, low 100s. So not long after John the Apostle had died, he was the last of the 12 to be alive. Well, in the, in the, in the second century, they had the Apostles' Creed. But at the Nicene Creed in the early 4th century, uh, they, they up, updated it, expanded it, because they were trying to hold the line on proper belief and doctrine. And so the Nicene Creed goes this way. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, creator of, creator of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being or one substance with the Father. And note that it said begotten, not made. They explicitly rejected the idea of the creation of Jesus or that he was a second order being. He emerged from God and the, the Greek word that they were contending with is the Greek word homo usios. Well, homo means same as, just like we homosexuality, attracted to the same sex. Homo usios meant of one substance, one being with the Father, the identical being. So there's one divine essence, but eternally manifested in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so I'm in the middle of the, the part that deals with Jesus when they finish that up, it says, now I've kind of lost my place, but uh, he was born of the Virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, and became man for our sakes. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. 
He suffered, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the, in the kind of older English versions, they said the quick and the dead, but quick is just a way of saying the living. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in one holy, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. Amen. Well, this is the Nicene Creed, but it was written because they were trying to buttress and hold back this flood that had come into the church, trying to take down the divinity of Jesus, trying to take down or trying to separate Jesus from Messiah or Jesus from Christ, uh, trying to take us toward pantheism and panentheism. This is a cauldron of issues, and um, all of it needs to be rejected. And a lot of it is flowing through renewal stream Christianity right now, and increasingly so. It, it grieves me to say that, but but it's true all the same, and, and that's exactly why we're doing this podcast. Now, I've said a lot, and I think I've talked nonstop for almost 30 minutes. So, Grant, go ahead and ask me some questions. All right. Uh, you know, my, I think the main question that, that comes to mind is, you know, these, these people that are propagating this, uh, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are intelligent. Uh, some of them are not maybe necessarily malintent and the question becomes how did they get there so in other words like um if we if we wanted to assume the best of these people and and not the worst how would one get there uh because what you just stated seems pretty straightforward but a lot of people seem to be falling into this and i i think a lot of people um you know, maybe even for good reason, uh, are falling into this. So how, how, help me understand how this is becoming, uh, you know, I know that people don't want God to be angry, but the people that are actually espousing this, they've done some research, they have something to back them up as well. And so I just kind of wanted to talk through some of that. Like, for instance, I know that they, uh, they reference that the word Messiah is used uh, for multiple people in the Old Testament for uh, you know, for Kings and for even for Cyrus and all of that. And so is that how they kind of get that idea of this just sort of overarching <coughs> or something? Well, the idea of being Mashad or being anointed is, yeah, it, it occurs other places in, in the old Testament. Um, we see it with the anointing of Solomon at the, at the Gihon spring uh, during the revolt of Adonijah. Um, it is used of Cyrus, but I think it's pretty well understood that since Cyrus was not a Jewish king, he couldn't be the Messiah. And I think really we, we can, even though it's a little <laughs> linguistically, it's a little challenging, but it, but it's, it's the right idea conceptually. I think we can talk about the Messiah as opposed to anybody who happens to be anointed. I mean, the high priest was a Messiah in that sense as well but priests weren't meant to be kings. And so, you know, when Aaron was anointed, he was Mashad. And with each successive high priest, when he would be installed, and in this case, it always was a he, so we're not being sexist to say it. Um, whenever a new high priest was installed, he would be Mashad. 
but there was always an understanding there would come one particular person who would be the Mashiach or Ha-Mashiach in Hebrew. Ha is the word for uh, the in Hebrew. So Ha-Mashiach. And so it's one thing to be Mashiach. It's another thing to be Ha-Mashiach. And there was never any understanding that there could be multiple people like this. Um, I think the other part of where this arises from, you know, there, there, are, there are all kinds of religions in the world. And, uh, you know, when I was at Princeton, I studied comparative religion. Most people never do that. And so they don't really have a sense of the many different flavors and stripes of, of religious belief that are out there. Um, by the way, I'm not sure it's always a good thing for people to do this because oftentimes those ideas get into their head and they, they infect their thinking. I mean, it's, it's, kind of a, it, it's kind of a dangerous thing. People can be led away. It, it sort of reminds me in the story of the Lord of the Rings, how Saruman began delving into the dark arts of Sauron and ultimately was seduced by them and became, you know, another dark Lord. And he was himself seeking the ring of power so that he could unseat Sauron. And so I think a lot of times people who become enamored of these sorts of beliefs and thinking I think a lot of times those ideas infect their minds. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, in latter times, some will give heed to seducing spirits and things taught by demons. That's 1 Timothy 4.1. Right. And then he says, their conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. So what ends up happening is, uh, when their conscience gets seared, they actually can't receive truth or they begin to twist truth to suit their own ends. And Paul had warned, interestingly, on the beach at Miletus, when he was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, after I go, there will come up even among your own members, ravenous wolves who will deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. And he says, be on your guard. And, you know, basically the idea is you need to you need to cut these people off the pass. And that's the idea that we see in the book of Jude, where Jude says, you know, these people, you know, they come up and they deny the sovereign Lord who brought them. But let's set aside Jude. Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter one. And he says, the reason I left you there on Crete is that you would silence certain people from teaching things that are dividing whole households and leading people astray. And so in our day, everybody wants to be honoring, and it's all about love. And with that, we've kind of laid down the idea of defending the truth once for all delivered to the saints, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And I will grant you, there have been plenty of examples over time of really heinous things that have gone on in the church, uh, you know, cutting people's tongues out, burning them at the stake drowning them in the name of getting a confession of heresy. I mean, these things should not be going on in the church. They never should have been going on in the church. But the fact that they went on doesn't mean that the defense of orthodox doctrine is thereby invalidated. And we actually need to come back to a place in our time where we are willing to make a defense of orthodoxy um, and we need apologists, we need teachers, and for that, we probably need teachers more than prophets. Uh, and we need this because 
those people are the ones who are going to safeguard Christianity so that it doesn't become what anybody wants it to mean. And in fact, in our time, there's a whole effort underway to redefine the Christian faith. They're doing it with regard to human sexuality. They're doing it with regard to matters of, uh, you know, what we understand of creation, that God is, uh, that God is the eternal one, and he creates this imminent order here on the earth, imminent, not like it's about to happen, not that sense of imminent, but imminent, rather tangible and visible to us here on this plane of mortality. And so the transcendent invaded the, the imminent when Jesus took on flesh. Um, there's an attempt to breach that very distinct boundary between the transcendent and the imminent with whether it's pantheism or panentheism. And so that needs to be safeguarded. I mean, we're talking about nothing more or less than Christian orthodoxy and a worldview, a worldview that brought us uh, Christianity and Christendom. And yes, there are, there's evil in the world. And maybe in some cases, the church was not always vigorous enough in going after the evil. And at times, the church was guilty of committing evil. Fair enough. We understand that these things happen among the people of God. The Bible itself portrays all of the wickedness and evil of the Jewish people who are God's chosen people. Why would we think that the church would somehow be better than that? But that's not the same thing as saying that we repudiate Orthodox Christianity and make it up as we go along. And that, in fact, is what is happening wholesale right now within the wider circles of Christendom, at least on the renewal side. But I think it's fair to say that even within a lot of the mainstream denominations that historically we would have thought of as the, you know, the, the main Protestant denominations, um, in many cases, the, the, the majority of what is being taught in those denominations goes right down this same pathway too. It probably has a different face to it. Um, they certainly have a different style of worship. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, if you look at the ideas that are undergirding a lot of the teaching in mainstream Protestantism right now, it's this same stuff. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's both. It's all, it's, it's taking over. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. A tremendous amount for sure. Um, and so okay. one thing I didn't make clear, but I probably should make clear is what I've learned in my, uh, in my journeys. And, you know, I didn't come by this easily. I, it was, you know, through lots and lots of praying and reflecting and ministering to people and talking with folks who'd been in one or another form of a cult, a cult, not a cult. Uh, one or another form of a cult, whether it be, say, Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Seventh-day Adventists, which deny eternal conscious punishment, um, but, but there could be many others that I could name, or when we look at some of the stranger, uh, you know, aberrant forms of things, um, I'm thinking right now of Elizabeth Clare Prophet and her belief in the, her religion called the Temple of the Ascended Masters, uh, maybe the, the book of Urantia, uh, these various kinds of things. All of this stuff is the same pantheism, panentheism, etc. And it's all coming home to roost and it's all being, you know, enfleshed in these various religious beliefs, these various cults or whatever they may be. And then when we look at what's gone on in the breakdown of Orthodox Christianity within mainstream Protestantism, one of, the, one of the driving forces of that has been the seminaries themselves 
because they've gone back and they've they've looked at gospels falsely so called that were um, originally excluded from the canon by the early church because they knew that these things didn't comport with the proper teaching of Jesus. Uh, they didn't comport with apostolic doctrine as it had been handed down. They didn't comport with the proper teaching of the things of God as those things were found not only in, uh, in the Orthodox scriptures as they came to be recognized, but within their own experience in the faith community of the way the Holy Spirit moved and the things that he brought into the community of faith, whether in the form of healing or miracles or whatever. And so what I've found is that people who follow these very disparate beliefs, whether they're mainstream Protestants, whether they're following some kind of fringy cult movement, or they're in uh, something that's a little more recognized, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, most of these people need deliverance from evil spirits when they come to faith, or sometimes in order to come to faith, because those spirits are blinding their eyes and minds. That's what's going on. And so when Paul says, in the latter times, some will give heed to seducing spirits and things taught by demons, their conscience having been seared as with a hot iron, and then he gives a few examples of the kinds of things that they taught. You know, one of the interesting ones is the, Paul says, they forbid the eating of meat. And today we see this emergent thing within a lot of our renewal stream circles of people saying, well, I'm a vegan, I'm a Christian vegan. Well, I mean, you can be, but the real question is what's driving you to do that? And oftentimes when we really get into a meaningful conversation with people, we find out that they've come under the influence of these kinds of teachings. And so they hold the same beliefs that the uh, New Agers hold. Meat is murder. Or if I eat meat, it's somehow a problem because I you know, am being unkind to animals or I'm engaging in speciesism, the idea that humans are higher than other uh, created beings. And yet the scriptural revelation is clear humans are actually higher. God did actually put human beings at the crown of creation. This is made very clear in Psalm 8, as well as in the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. And so that doesn't mean we have a right to run roughshod over the world. We were put here to steward it, <clears throat> to care for it, to tend it. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to take care of it. So that doesn't give us a right to, to despoil and pillage the earth. But neither is it correct to say that animals are the same as humans and that the eating of meat is wrong. I note with interest that when Adam and Eve first sinned and they clothed themselves with fig leaves, God himself made um, clothing for them out of the skins of animals. Well, the only way you're going to get the skin off an animal is to kill an animal. And so God himself apparently believed that animals were worthy of being sacrificed on behalf of human beings. And let's not forget that the entire temple ritual included the sacrifice of bulls and lambs and goats and turtle doves, and it included the eating of the meat that came from those animals. And so again, the, the whole notion behind this emergent veganism that people are wanting to go down, oftentimes, I'd say the majority of the time, there is a spirit behind it that is driving people in this direction. So it's kind of a long answer to the question you asked of why are people going there? But they're going there 
because of these teachings of demons. They're going there because their conscience has been seared and they can no longer receive truth. They're going there because they want to make themselves equal to God, which was, of course, Satan's initial uh, sin and caused him to be cast out of heaven. And, you know, one of the one of the key underpinnings of all New Age doctrine and teaching is that we are actually God or we can be equal to God. And so we should reach out for that and find our divinity. Well, we're right back to this idea that, you know, Jesus was more tapped into his divinity than most of us are. But but the Christ uh, isn't limited to Jesus. And we are all Christ uh, as these two people that I've cited are teaching. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Just to kind of back up and uh, and make some some clarifying statements, you aren't saying that if you're vegetarian or vegan, uh, that you're practicing some sort of heresy. Not per se, but you could be. Could be, but it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that. Right. It's really a function of what's your motivation here, right? Um, and you know what what's your belief set that brings you to that. You know, a lot of times when I'm traveling, I've stayed in pastors' homes, and a lot of times in those homes, there'll be some teenage daughter, you know, 15, 16 years old, maybe 14 or even 13, maybe up to 17, 18. Uh, and, you know, we, we're sitting down to eat, and she'll proudly announce, I'm vegan. I go, oh, what, what brings you to that? Well, you know, meat is murder. And, you know, my friends say, and da -da -da, you know, there's this kind of self-righteous attitude about it. And I'll usually say kind of half jokingly, there's deliverance for that, you know, and, you know, the pastor will look at me and the wife will look at me and the, you know, the daughter will look at me and they're not quite sure what to make of that. But a lot of times in situations like that one, not all the time, I want to be clear, not every case. Um, but a lot of times um, these young women have been taken in by something they picked up somewhere on the internet, maybe a teacher in their classroom at school uh, whatever, but they are not thinking biblically, even though they are a pastor's daughter. And so we really need to have a very clear understanding from scripture. And that's why I highlighted that God himself put an animal or two to death to make skins for Adam and Eve. And not only that, the entire sacrificial system relies on the death of animals, and it contemplates the eating of meat. Now, that's not to say you must eat meat, but it is to say you better have a pretty good reason why you're not going to do it, at least sometimes. You might say, well, meat has cholesterol in it. It's bad for my blood. It creates plaque in the arteries. And so I don't want to eat much red meat or maybe no red meat. I'm only going to eat fish and be a pescatarian. All right. I mean, I, I can understand why people might go there. Um, apparently, God didn't think it was such a risk that he told the Jews that they could only eat fish. But, you know, if you want to do that and you, that, that's your motivation, I think that might be fine. It's really, though, when people start getting tangled up in these thoughts that are, they're, they're somehow anti-biblical. And right. usually underneath all that, there is a root that we need to dig out. Yeah. Okay. Just want to clarify. Yeah. Uh, some of our, our listeners there. No, I think it's important to do because a lot of times when I'm teaching, I try to be really clear, but sometimes I forget to be clear enough. So I'm, I'm glad that you asked the question. Well, you know, Ken, uh, You've, you've spoken in my church many a times. And so <laughs> I'm just, I'm just answering questions that I've already been asked before. Right. Uh, so, um, no, I think, I think this is an important conversation and it's interesting. And I think it can be, you know, we've probably come up on our time here, but 
I think I think this can be you know part one of a multi-part conversation because what what you're saying and what it seems to be leading towards and experientially what I've seen it lead towards this separation of the person of Jesus and the, and the title messianic title of Christ. Yeah, I mean you you went you went through. Uh, it, it does cause you to, to, to throw out the doctrine of hell. It does cause you uh, to throw out um, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It does cause you. And so it really is this slope that begins to just pick apart the, the really the foundations of our faith. And like you were saying before, as far as the comparative to Hinduism and, and all of it, I mean, it really becomes something else. It's not, it, because it, it's taking so many legs out from, the base of Christianity, it, it, it really turns our faith into something other than, I mean, it's it might be something, but it's not, it's not the Christian faith that we've had for centuries. That's right. Uh, here. So I would love to, to maybe, you know, in part two or three or whatever, explore, you know, each one of those pillars that it really does undermine and talk through that because this is a, it's a very pervasive thing. I've seen it multiple times uh, pastorally where people have, you know, started down this path and then they're they wind up in some pretty bizarre places and uh i mean going going all the way from just you know complete atheists to um like practicing witches to um all that god-fearing people that have started down this this path and, and gone into all these different places so i think it's a worthwhile discussion i think there's what we're finding here in this discussion is there's there's much more to to be discussed um, on this, so maybe yep. when we get time, we can we can hit this a couple couple more times uh, over the next couple months. Uh, right, right along the you know, Easter, it makes it, it makes a it does make it a little bit more relevant with uh, with us beginning to celebrate Easter here in the next few weeks. That's right. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I think uh, I think we've done a, a pretty good job of cracking this open and uh, and giving us something. Uh, something to think about for sure. So, is there uh, anything else uh, you'd like to to add in before we we sign off here? I think I would just like to say that if you if you are attending a church where there's these sorts of things being taught, or you you sense something that kind of leans this way, even if it's not fully articulated, I I would encourage you to go talk with your pastor about what what do you really mean by this because um well i mean i could just launch into a whole nother round of talking here but um i've i've visited a lot of churches where this sort of thing has somehow been allowed to creep in and uh sometimes it's it's been the pastor himself who's teaching it um, i'm aware of one very prominent flagship church of a whole movement um in the central United States where this sort of thing is being allowed to be propagated. And it's very much a renewal stream church that most people would recognize the name of. Um, so sometimes it's a pastor who's propagating it. Other times they'll bring in an outside speaker. I one time was out in Western Australia and actually a guy that I knew uh, years ago in vineyard times who was a very good teacher and moved powerfully in the prophetic and in deliverance and was a, a real man of, of God. I mean, he ministered uh, profoundly to my wife and to me and to many of my friends. And he would come through a couple of times a year. He'd sort of gone on a journey, gone in a different way. And so anyway, he, he, 
he had been invited to speak at this church in Western Australia. And when I showed up, the, the senior pastor, he and I knew one another quite well, and I'd been there many times. And he said, Ken, I'm going to be out of town uh, when you're here, but I want you to feel free to speak to anything you want to speak to and just, you know, preach, go hard. And the staff all knows that So-and-so, who was this preacher that I'd known from years before, uh, came here recently, and he put up a slide on our, um, you know, our screens as part of his talk, and he said, I want you all to learn this word, say it with me, and the slide had a pink background and white letters. They showed me the slide. They still had it, you know, loaded to their servers, and it was one single word, panentheism. And this guy got up and gave a talk on panentheism and why it was where he had landed and he was moving in process theology and he was, you know, he was teaching all this. And they said, Ken, you know, our pastor's been out of town for a couple of weeks and it has created pandemonium in the church. I mean, it's just it, people are they don't know what to believe and they're, you know, they're kind of scared. And some are talking about leaving that we would allow this to be taught. And we didn't really realize even where he was going. It seemed like a strange doctrine to us, but nobody really knew how to handle it. I mean, this is actually why we do need theological education. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't think you necessarily must have a doctorate or a, even a master of divinity to be a preacher, but you do need somehow to be literate in the basic concepts of theology and what's wrong and right and what the church has long ago settled on uh, so that you don't either allow this stuff to go on or wander into it yourself. And, uh, you know, I think this is the value of schools like Global Awakenings uh, School of Supernatural Ministry, GSSM, uh, they call it Global School of Supernatural Ministry, uh, or Bethel School, BSSM, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And there are some others around as well. But, um, you know, these are for people that maybe don't have the desire or the money to go to a seminary and get a proper degree, but they can at least be trained and equipped not to stumble into this stuff. Or when it pops up in their congregation, they can say, hang on, I know that's wrong because we at least talked about it in my class. And even if they can't go into all of the ins and outs like I just did, they can at least say, here are the you know kind of three basic talking points you need to know about why you shouldn't believe this and why we're going to exclude it from our church. Right. I, I, think, yeah. there's, I think there's value in that. That's great. I love it. Yeah. Well, ben, thank you so much for uh, for taking time. Again, I think we're going to continue to unpack this over the next few weeks as we sprinkle in uh, other episodes with interviews and uh, other talks. But uh, I think this is a really good first start. And um, so I'm looking forward to, to continuing this conversation. So uh, thanks so much for taking time to join us. And thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll be right back here uh, next week, same time, same channel, uh, with another episode. God is not a theory. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening.
Hi everyone, it's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, you can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.